Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. In our era of everything being highly partisan and politicized, it may not seem strange that even judges are openly characterized as being liberal or conservative. But really, it is a little strange, isn't it? Aren't judges supposed to be impartial and not swayed by any political party or ideology? But we recognize that while judicial impartiality might be an ideal, actual judges are only human, and their judgments are influenced by all of the emotions, biases, prejudices, and assumptions that make us human. This tension between the ideal of judicial impartiality and the all-too-human nature of how justice actually works is nothing new. Frankel fellow Chaya Halberstam explores how ancient legal records grapple with the very same issue. I am interested both in how ancient societies imagined uh, the role of judges, what they thought judges were ideally supposed to do, as well as the kind of um, admitted reality, perhaps, of the way it actually was, and whether there was a conflict between those two or whether there was perfect harmony and judges were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Halberstam, who's an associate professor of religious studies at King's University College at the University of Western Ontario, looks at legal texts from a variety of ancient cultures in and around the Middle East. For example, she studies Mesopotamian documents dating from around 2000 BCE. And they all have kind of preambles and epilogues where they really talk about the role of the king as a guarantor of justice, as a kind of ultimate judge. And in all of those, the king is responsible, say Hammurabi, for guaranteeing justice in the land. But justice doesn't mean applying the law impartially. Instead, the king is described as a champion of the weak, vulnerable, and oppressed. A kind of social justice rather than a kind of impartial justice. Although they often do imagine this king as a judge. So they kind of conjure up the king as ultimate judge. They say he will judge the land with equity and peace and righteousness and justice, and he will save the weak and the oppressed. And one thing that scholars have noted is that there are no impartiality clauses in any ancient Mesopotamian legal collection. The Hebrew Bible, meanwhile, describes justice in ways that are pretty similar to Mesopotamian law, but with a nod toward the concept of judicial impartiality. They echo all of the same ideas from ancient Mesopotamia that the judges and not, they say it about kings, but also in instructions to judges, that the judges need to not distort the justice of the poor and the weak and the orphans and the widows. But they add to that some real impartiality clauses. Judges must not show partiality. They must not take bribes. So where did this biblical concept of impartiality come from? It's possible it came from ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt did have a notion of judicial impartiality. In fact, we get the scales of justice come from ancient Egypt and a goddess, um, Ma'at, who was uh, supposed to weigh the souls of the dead against a feather to decide if they were going to heaven or hell, basically. In any case, the Hebrew Bible doesn't seem to be bothered by what might seem to us like a contradiction, that justice is both impartial and weighted towards lifting up the weak and powerless. So in several passages, these things are just kind of put side by side. And I find it very interesting that they didn't necessarily find this to be a conflict. So 
and the Hebrew Bible from Exodus, the Covenant Code, which is one of the uh, oldest law collections in the Hebrew Bible. We get, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Uh, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those on the right. Um, you shall not oppress a resident alien. They just have all of these kind of side by side. And I find it very interesting that their notion of judging is expansive enough to do both, to imagine a kind of impartiality where one is not being bribed, but also having an eye out for those who are weak, for those who are vulnerable, and lifting them up. Halberstam also looks at legal sources from ancient Greece, specifically Athens, And at first glance, she thought the Athenians had perhaps solved the problem of judicial impartiality. Because in classical Athenian democracy, they had a very democratic method uh, for judging disputes. So it started off a little more autocratic, but they moved to a system in which judges or really juries were in the hundreds. And the people who would serve on the jury for whatever case was happening would just be chosen by lot. They would pick lots in the morning so no one would know who the jury was going to be. There could be up to 500 people on this jury and you would never know who it was going to be. And then it was just a kind of free-for-all because these, these juries, just like our juries today, had no real legal expertise. So they just had to listen to competing narratives of the two sides of the case. And in the end, there was a vote and majority one. So, you know, how could this be a corrupt process? It seems to leave uh, the issue of judicial decision to a democratic system, and therefore you're kind of guaranteeing a kind of impartial decision, um, because how could 500 people be biased in favor of one side or another? And yet, ancient Athenian sources are full of accusations of corrupt juries and partial justice. One thing uh, that we know is that because it was a kind of free-for-all, the litigant who had the best orator, you know, who could make the best speech, who could appeal to the sympathies of the masses, usually wound up winning or could easily persuade this large group that, you know, they were, they ought to vote in favor of them. You know, if you could evoke tears, then you would win. So that was one way that uh, they saw the system as problematic. Athenian legal sources also document plenty of bribery. The way ancient Athens and also ancient Rome worked was through a system of patronage. So rich and uh, wealthy people would provide kind of, you know, donations to the city and the city, he would be a kind of patron for the city. So if someone was going to be on trial, he couldn't necessarily bribe the jurors, but he could certainly provide a healthy donation to the polis, to the city, and as such, uh, use that in his uh, case to say, I am a patron of the city. I've provided this wonderful, you know, these wonderful amenities, a new bathhouse, a new, you know, library, whatever it is. Uh, to the city, and how could the demos or the people not be influenced by that to sort of judge in favor of that again? Today, we're still dealing with this problem of how the ideal of the law as impartial never quite measures up to how justice actually works. Ancient legal writings, Halberstam says, can help us come to terms with the issue by accepting that justice, or at least the way we humans dole it out, can never be truly impartial. Nothing really gets us out of this problem of 
people who are making these decisions or even deities who we might imagine are making these decisions having some kind of ties to the material and human world around them. And to me, it's really led me toward feeling that the best that we can do is to stop um, denying it, as we often do, and saying, no, no, judges can rise above this, they can truly be impartial, they can put their biases aside. I think we really need to stop saying that and just acknowledge that whoever the decision maker is, is going to have biases, is going to be partial in certain ways, and then sort of rebuild uh, what, however we make decisions from the bottom up. You know, it may look something more like mediation, it may look something more like uh, restorative justice. But if we just stop pretending that we can have a kind of almost mathematical, impartial decision-making, I think we'd be better off. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.